I finally came to the point where I stopped saying I was a bad boyfriend. I was bad to myself and others. And I had to get to the point where I said I was bad to women. Mm. Period. And that's without any sort of equivocation. It's the hardest thing in the world to say out loud. I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. And this is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about daddy issues, father figures, and dismantling the paternal mystique. We examine how fathers, both literal and symbolic, influence pop culture, politics, and the lives of people of every generation from all over the world. So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff. I'm Erin Hosier. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. Dude. This conversation is about so many things. Yes. It's about men behaving badly on the inside and the outside, you know, like living out loud or being a piece of shit just between you and your girlfriend, let's say. What is it about masculinity that seems like such a roadblock to sanity and peace? How much change is possible and how much recovery is too much to expect? Is there a cure for being an asshole and what it means to see yourself as a villain, as our next guest does, in your own hero's journey? Let's talk about AJ Delario. Delario. Remember when we found out Rihanna? It's Rihanna and it's Delario, right? It's Delario. No, no. I think I got schooled. It's Delario. AJ came on our show two years ago. Why don't you tell what AJ's background is for people that didn't listen to that episode or who are unfamiliar with him? AJ Delario is the former Gawker.com editor-in-chief in in the mid-2000s who was embroiled in the Hulk Hogan versus Gawker.com First Amendment trial of the century. In 2012, he published a portion of a leaked sex tape of pro-wrestling icon Hulk Hogan's wife with his best friend, another wrestler known as Bubba the Love Sponge. The sex tape had already been published by TMZ and other outlets by the time AJ made the editorial decision that he made. Hogan sued, nevertheless, for copyright infringement and emotional distress. The lawsuit was financially backed by maniacal billionaire Peter Thiel, who had an axe to grind with Gawker for a story about him that they'd run years before, posted by a different editor, outing Thiel as gay. At one point in the deposition, AJ was being grilled about the newsworthiness of celebrity sex tapes and A lawyer asked what it would take for him to not post a sex tape to the internet. I'm paraphrasing about that part, but AJ sarcastically replied that if the footage were of a child, the lawyer said what age and AJ said four. That moment of sarcasm came back to bite him on the stand and the jury didn't just find in the Hulk's favor, but added millions and millions in extra punitive damages just for AJ. It was a long dragged out trial. AJ, who is sober now for many years and at the time was freshly sober, was in a really fragile place and 
put through the Hulk Hogan lawyer gulag and it ended with AJ being on the hook for like $125 million or something ridiculous. Yeah, it was like $200 million in debt at one point. All of this with the trial, you can see it on this Netflix documentary called Nobody Speak, Trials of the Free Press. And that came out in 2017, but it's on Netflix now. The point is, AJ was publicly shamed. He was publicly bankrupted. He loved his job at Gawker. He lost it. He lost everything. He was privately going through all of this stuff, trying to be sober, trying to pick up the pieces. And in 2016, after the trial, he basically moved to L.A. and in with his girlfriend. And within months of moving to Los Angeles, that girlfriend was pregnant. And now he's married and has three kids with her. His wife is named Julianne who AJ refers to in this interview. And I think part of the public shaming that we talk about, like, you know, on the one hand, there are a lot of people out there that could look at what happened to AJ and the trial and be like, this is, you know, as you said, the First Amendment trial of the century. What a joke funded by a vindictive billionaire. But the flip side of that, and the, some, I think where some of the public shaming came in is that, not only did AJ lose his job at Gawker, everyone who worked at Gawker lost their job because Gawker went under as a Good result point. of this choice that AJ made, you know, and that's a lot yeah. to own up to, to your peers who now also don't have jobs because of what you did. You know, he had a shitty reputation just as a guy in 2012 or in the, the Gawker era, which so did I, uh, 2000, you know, eight through probably like 2014. You had a shitty reputation? Oh my God. Well, I just, I don't think that I did anything that differently than AJ would have done. I definitely would have made that same sarcastic comment in a deposition with a piece of shit lawyer any day. Mm -hmm. I thought he did a great job in that trial and I mm -hmm. felt bad for him at the time not knowing him. Totally. I did, too. I think anyone who cares about First Amendment rights or the media and treatment of journalists cared and fought yes. for AJ, which brings us to a couple of things about why we had AJ on for yeah. a second time. Aaron, you're AJ's literary agent. Yes. Yes. And that relationship came up because of two reasons. Number one, AJ came on our show to talk about being a dad and his relationship with his dad. But number two, the foundation for that interview and what has inspired this new relationship with you guys is that AJ as a writer continues to write and has this recovery newsletter called The Small Bow that is right. so good. We both so love good. it. We talk about it in this interview and in our prior interview with him. If you are a human on the planet, you will relate to the writing on this this website, but specifically also I think a really helpful place for people who are in recovery, who love people who are in recovery, yeah. who have anything to do with anyone in the recovery world. The Small Bow is a great resource. And so you guys started working together because you said, wow, there's some great pieces here. 
Yeah, I was like, you really need to write a book about this, about what you write about on the small bow, right? Not just like what happened at Cocker, the usual, right? Memoir. It's really about his personal growth, not to be gross, but yeah, his personal growth and his desire to change, yeah, to change and. We always joke that he's like fuckhead and Jesus's son by Dennis Johnson. It's a good movie uh, starring Billy Crudup as fuckhead. But it's just like this fuckhead. He does everything wrong. He's just a fucking knucklehead. Mm-hmm. But by the end of the book, is capable of changing. So it's about when you have been an asshole and you know you've been an asshole or that you are an asshole. Mm -hmm. It's not just about the apology, right? And it's about the change and Mm -hmm. being the change you want to see in the world, but for real. For real. You know, the episode we did that was the impetus for this is called Shia LaBeouf, Army Hammer, and the Curse of Legacy Cannibalism. And that's a two-hour show. But he really responded to the first part, which is Shia LaBeouf, we look at him giving that fateful interview that he gave mm. um, over the summer mm-hmm. with John Bernthal on a podcast called Real Ones. Or is it The Real Ones? Re- just Real Ones. Just Real Ones. Yeah, it's a real one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll play some more clips. But I think AJ you know, really related to Shia LaBeouf and his plight. Yeah. Um, Someone who has been canceled and who is now in recovery. So he wanted to come on to talk to us. And then we also wanted to talk to him about an essay that he wrote called This Is Not Your Story that was on the small bow. So we just thought we would give the listeners at home a little more context. The piece looks at AJ's I guess a journalist had recently contacted him to do a documentary about the Hogan trial. And AJ says, no, he's not interested. And then it sort of goes into his history of being approached to do press about the Hogan trial. The fact that he did ultimately do a big interview with Esquire right afterwards. And then the sort of murky, you know, sorting out of victim or villain that comes with getting this sort of treatment or attention from the media. Was AJ a victim or a villain? It's hard to not be put into a repository of either. So he doesn't like to do press around this. And ultimately, the piece ends with talking about his recovery. And Mm -hmm. I think the story, to go back to the, the headline, the story is that he is a work in progress and we will continue to be and has three kids at home now and a wife. And one thing that he says towards the end of this piece is that he really struggles with two things, not wanting to swoop in and save other men that he sees being canceled or struggling. So Thank Jeffrey you. Tubin. Jeffrey yeah, Tubin. Big Jeff Tube. Big, big Jeff Tube who famously Uh. accidentally masturbated on a Zoom call in front of all of his New Yorker colleagues. He somehow didn't turn off his camera and then everybody saw everything. That AJ really contemplated reaching out to him and and inviting him to a men's AA meeting and, and didn't thought better of it. But that need to save, to protect, to help, to say, 
I have been there too. I get it too. But also he talks about the effect of having gone through the trial. He says in this piece that he would never, after being sued, he will never sue someone ever. And you, you wanted to challenge him on that in this interview and you do. Because as you point out, well, think about that might be great for you, but think about the people out there suing because they were raped. They're suing because someone beat them up at a gas station and then lied to them about having an STD. These are the things that Shia LaBeouf is accused of doing to FKH Wigs is suing him for an upcoming trial. And he says to you, Aaron, in this interview, yeah. I hear you. And I think part of me saying I would never sue someone for any reason comes from an unhealed part of myself. Mm-hmm. And I really loved that he said that to you. He said, I might change my mind down the road. That yeah. to me is like the epitome of AA and Al-Anon of being like, you might change your mind. Things might change. Mm-hmm. Um And to be able to be flexible and not rigid and have everything be right and perfect in your recovery or in your points of view, because life will always change, number one. Number two, that made me think a lot about, you know, AJIC is someone who I'd like to say is recovered or is healed. And he's, he's a work in progress. He's recovering. He's healing. And that part of him is unhealed and he owns that. And I relate to that. As I said to you, you know, we just finished editing this episode. When I finished my listen on it, I was embarrassed about how much I go into what AJ describes as his need to reach out to Jeffrey Tubin. I have a part of me like I don't make tell me about your father from a healed place. (laughs) I don't. Like, I would That's love. so true. I think maybe if you asked us two years ago. Right. Why, you know, why make this show that maybe we both would have been tempted to or said with confidence. Well, you know, we've really been through therapy and recovered and you've said it like it's all. Behind- I've said it to you and you you very gently brought me back down to earth. I was like, you know, I'm healed. I'm mm-hmm. whole, mm-hmm. you know, and. This show keeps reminding us that there's no such thing. There's no such thing, right? And I feel how unhealed I am when I listen to me going, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. And not to say that I don't agree with AJ or I don't believe AJ's recovery because I do, but as the daughter of an alcoholic going, Mm. "Uh uh the daughter of a dad that lied, he was so great. And I think about him constantly especially this christmas time of year he was such a great person but he was a liar like with the capital l and he couldn't help it and it was all entwined in his alcoholism and ego and narcissism and whatever but i think your dad too had these secrets the secret pot used the secret rage at home but beloved by the community class act marketer you're still meeting people in ohio yes decades after his death who are like you know, Jack Hozier was the best, you know, like there were things about our dads that they really were the best. They really were these amazing guys, but they were liars. And (laughs) so I think I am overly dazzled at times Mm -hmm. by any man that rolls up his sleeves and says, put me in a meeting. I'd love to go to therapy. My take on that is like, 
whoa, like I'm blown away because I never saw a man model that for me. Like my dad never, I don't know if how many meetings he actually ever went to, but he died of his alcoholism, the disease one. And so I think I'm very, at times, I have great sympathy for and uh, tend to root for men that are trying. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I felt a wave of shame in this interview listening to it because you butt in and are like, but wait a minute, let's not forget what he did to FKA Twigs. And that's true. And I have an unhealed part in me. That can sometimes forget there are women that were legitimately hurt by him in in the wake of his behavior, Mm -hmm. you know, and he says, I was bad to women. And AJ says in our interview, I was bad to women. And I think that what I want for both of these men, AJ and Shia LaBeouf, but any man out there that can honestly say, I was bad to women. I was bad to people. I was bad to my friends. I was bad to my children. I was bad to my coworkers. I was bad to people that I managed, whatever the dynamic was. Mm -hmm. And here's how I'm going to change. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do things differently. I hate that there's women in the wake, though. And that's why we do it. I know. Have these conversations. I know what you mean, though. I'm like all twisted up and turned around about the Robert Downey Jr. thing where he's reportedly an island for every Hollywood bad boy who just needs somebody to understand him or give him some grace. It feels like a bit of a boys club where they sort of reference each other. These are like men in Hollywood that are trying to get sober or are participating in sober practices, if you will. And so in Shia's interview, he he name drops a lot. It feels like there's like a lot of of love, frankly, for guys like when they fuck up. Yeah. Yeah. And so that makes me jealous and that makes me also feel um, defensive. But recently, Robert Downey Jr. himself made a documentary film. It's basically an episode of Tell Me About Your Father, wherein Robert Downey Sr., It is called Senior, the film, who was an underground filmmaker in the 60s and 70s, 80s, who was just like a bad boy and kind of famously gave his son, gave Robert Downey Jr. like marijuana, his first joint when he was six. And I just always thought, how do you forgive your father? Like, what's wrong with you that you can't? you know, see how fucked up that is that, I mean, me, <laughs> like who who wrote a memoir about how fucked up their dad was and how they forgive them all the same, you know, it's, it, I totally relate to that. So, but when I saw the documentary, mm-hmm. big bad Robert Downey Sr. just seemed like, just like a nice old man who, who smoked pot in the 70s and made a mistake. And at one point after Robert Downey Jr. goes through his hell of drug addiction and doing prison time and everything, he apologizes to him like publicly. And I don't know. It's just that you get to see all the different sides of a person. Mm -hmm. um, And we just can't know that until you have them on your podcast where you can judge them fully. But 
It's always going to be a struggle. And we are so grateful that AJ came on the show to talk to us and that he trusted us enough to be vulnerable because I know he actually doesn't love to tell these stories Mm -hmm. except in his writing. So it's a good thing. It is a good thing. good thing. It's a good thing. It's easy to talk about celebrities who we've never met, but that's because we relate. We feel like we know these guys enough or I we know. know those victims enough. Like I know. it's so similar. I know. And it totally just goes into that. Like the whole point of the Shia episode was culturally our need to, yeah. you know, give them another shot. There is a race to forgive mm-hmm. that's the Hollywood machine, right? Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. The, the agents publicist the whatever and we touch on this with aj you touch on it beautifully in the shia episode i don't know that army hammer will ever come back but never say never you know as we've seen over and over again there's a whole ecosystem of people that rely that have their spokes and the cogs of these actors canceled or not that need them to work again and so there is a push obviously for Let's forgive and forget. You know, it's the Mandela effect that Sean Penn allegedly hit Madonna. Right. Suddenly that story, wait, that didn't happen. Right. Talk about gaslighting. It sucks that I'm so wowed by like a man making an effort. Like, dude, fucking sucks. I can't even believe we found one to talk to. Talk about misandry. I can't believe it. Right? We can't. It's part of this episode, ladies and gentlemen, is that we just can't believe our luck. We just can't believe it. AJ, don't AJ, let us down. Ooh, don't fuck it up. No pressure. And here's our episode. Let's talk about the essay that you wrote that had a couple of just surprising throwaway lines to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, why this essay now? I've never had more people kind of reach out to me, very concerned. And they're just like, so did you really text Jeffrey Tubin? And I was just like, I was about to, but I, but I did not. But I had a real habit of trying to reach out to men or women in particular, who yes. I th- will be experiencing some of the feelings that I felt when uh, I had my own public sort of dust up and shame spiral. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm very, very drawn to that in a way where I just always want to kind of, if I see someone on fire in that way, I throw a blanket over them, whether or not I should. And this all had come up again because there's another Gawker Hogan docu-series being made at this point. You know, I've gotten contacted about a couple of times in the past, you know, over the summer and then recently a month ago and all of this stuff comes up. Again, for me, and even though I am better at handling it, it still always results in a conversation that I never want to have or a reaction that I never want to have. If mm-hmm. I'm talking to a person on the phone, no, I don't want to talk about that. And I end up talking to him about an hour for an hour. <laughs> right. right, anyway, right. And, and then just always end up, but this is off the record, you know, like that. But here's this <laughs> other thing to look into. I hear here. And, um, but I mean, there's the, the, the thing that I always come back to when, Anyone tries to tell this story from my perspective and humanize me, yeah. there are always two versions. And, and they always want to make me a victim in this. And mm-hmm. like, you know, Ari and I have talked about this and kind of just like assembling the book where it's just 
how to kind of get rid of that notion altogether. If you're going to start from that story, how do you tell that story without having someone at the end of it just like, I feel so bad for you, right? Mm. Uh, because I don't feel that way anymore. But it, inevitably, anytime you have a conversation with someone else trying to tell that story and my role in it, you know, their approach to me is always along the lines of just, you know, hey, you were a victim here. We feel so bad right. for you over the case. And, and we want to tell that side for you, right? And that was something that was super appealing to me in year one, just because I felt I didn't know who I was at that point. But I thought that the only value in my life was professionally speaking. And then just that seemingly kind of, you know, being torched in real time was something that I tried to protect over my own, over me, um, weirdly enough. But mm -hmm. almost seven years later from that, I see a version of me having, doing all those interviews within that first year, probably within my first 679 days or whatever Shia had, you know, right. and old, like, oh man, shit, let's go. Like, you know, just, <laughs> just don't huh. say anything. Yeah. Yeah. Just don't say anything. But not knowing any of that till I got to this point. But the essay, and this is how I can kind of just, you know, tie these two things together, which is just when, when I am talking about my personal recovery, or I think that anyone is talking about their personal recovery, it's impossible to not come across like you're seeking redemption. Mm -hmm. Steeped in the program, we're as spiritually fit as you can be. If we're talking that language in any sort of way, I think there's a natural cynicism towards whoever's receiving it to basically be like, oh, they're trying to make themselves look better for this awful thing that they did or the rotten person they are. Right. They get their job back or the relationship back or whatever. Yeah. And I'm fully aware of that. And I always try to kind of call myself out when I talk about those things. Right. But there's a, there's a level of dishonesty to that, too, because you begin to curate a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was also something that I was trying to kind of get to in that, in that essay where I just, you know, I had to, I brought up the Jeffrey Tubin thing because I wanted to say just like, look, I'm not 100% fine. I'm going to tell everybody that I'm kind of just like, you know, okay, and I am okay to a certain degree, but I lose my footing constantly, especially mm -hmm. when I'm activated by this sort of stuff where I... I feel defensive. I feel protective. Yeah, I, these are all these re reactions that I still have when I'm working through. Um, Let me quickly say that Jeffrey Tubin was the disgraced New Yorker and CNN talking head who masturbated on a Zoom call with colleagues. I know, I know we can't <laughs> laugh about these things on air. Sorry. It is funny. And the fact that he did it in front of Masha Gessen makes it funnier. AJ, can I just quote from your essay to, to set it up a little bit? Sure, yeah. This is from AJ's, one of his latest essays, which is the essay that we're referring to. It's going to take us in the Shia. AJ wrote, after Jeffrey Tubin was fired from the New Yorker for masturbating on a Zoom call during a staff meeting, I contemplated reaching out to Jeffrey Tubin, who was nice to me once, to see if he'd be interested <laughs> in attending a secret men's AA meeting with me. I know it's a little insane. I didn't text him, though. I feel an unhealthy urge to rescue those who may feel as desperate and discarded as I once did. 
Two therapists told me that this is common, resting squarely between solid sobriety and PTSD. I mean, that last sentence really, I related to it deeply when I read it because I also, I don't come from a place necessarily of PTSD, but there is, as yeah. the person who's only in Al-Anon and ACA, this need to help people to overextend, to be like, come with me. <laughs> right. See the light. And I think that there was, if my most charitable read of Shia's decision to give a two-hour blabathon was that that's what he thought he was doing too. Or maybe he was coming from a similar place of a Venn diagram between legitimate trauma from what he's gone through and pink cloud, I got this sobriety, maybe. I don't know. Right. Yeah. What do you think? I agree 100%. I, it was just because I feel like, I think you touched on this, but where it's just, I, he said some things they were absolutely extraordinary and very, very, and, and said them in a way that I've never heard anyone say out loud. Such as? That this moment made him useful, finally, mm. which I 100% agree, which nobody says because that's language mm. steeped in 12 steps sort of, you know, uh, stuff. But I believe him in that. And it, he's, he's tough to believe in that state that he's in, right? Mm -hmm. But And I also think he's got a pretty good sponsor. He seems like that he's listening to other people for once. There are a whole bunch of contradictions there between, and you guys pointed it out, between like, you know, the ego death that he's experiencing while he's talking about his ego death and his not self-aware enough to understand that this is, he shouldn't be speaking at all. Like my life is now, I've experienced ego death. And what that's allowed me to do is like open myself up to being what dudes like, like Brolin and, and not to lump them all to the same category, and I probably shouldn't even do that, but other dudes that, you know, Mel. I remember seeing Mel at the Oscars with his head held high, and I thought, I was sitting in rehab. This was the bullshit rehab, but I remember seeing that and thinking like, oh, man, I could do it, you know? And this is, I'm trying to present a different version of that to the world where it's like, all right, you know, the business aside and, like, all the ego shit aside, which really isn't my aim anymore, like, my life is incredible. Like, I'm so fucking blessed. But, like, look, I mean, there, there, there are not many men in particular who are going to kind of just, like, you know, speak the way he spoke about the situation that he's in. And because sure. this is the thing, and, and this is the stuff where I, I saw a little bit of the pushback against him. Well, you shouldn't give him a platform to redeem himself like that. Look, this motherfucker is not redeeming himself. I'm sure that his agent and his lawyer, and probably his wife, just like, don't fucking do this, right? You know, yeah, you're going to make things worse. And I, I think there's a part of him that understands that part. But then there's this whole spiritualized version of him that feels like he needs to get out in front of this too. Mm -hmm. Not because of how much he believes in this process that he's going through. So, I mean, that that was the part where I was uh, a very moved by the effort that he's making, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's moronic and, like I said, idiotic to talk about his thing with uh, twigs that's, uh, you know, still hasn't gone to trial yet. Right. Morning. And talking about a whole bunch of other stuff that's basically just like, if I'm uh, the lawyer on the other side, I'm basically being like, thanks, thanks, <laughs> thank you, right? Thank you know? And I was a dishonest person in that I was wearing this mask you know I 
I've gotten cold sores my whole life. Got them from my mother. I get two cold sores a year when I'm stressed out or I'm sick. I never told any of my sexual partners about getting cold sores. Never. And that's something, when you talk about like, how do you, what, you know, how do you, how do you talk to these people who you done fucked over? Like there's certain shit you can't clean up. But, but I mean, also knowing full well that I made those same mistakes. I was blabbing basically the whole time where, and, and, you know, their lawyers would call me up. My lawyer would be just like, you you idiot. You just bought yourself another day in court by what you said. And I was just like, but I don't care. I'm on a higher plane here, man. Yeah. I'm being judged by something else. Right. Right. But I truly hope that the good parts of that interview, which could have been 20 minutes, were just like the the amount of time he, he was taking responsibility in some ways for this is what I think he should have said. Okay. After years and years of personal inventories that I've had to do. I finally came to the point where I stopped saying I was a bad boyfriend. I was bad to myself and others. And I had to get to the point where I said I was bad to women. Mm. Period. And that's without any sort of equivocation. It's the hardest thing in the world to say out loud. Okay. Thank you for saying it because you're not alone. Because I did the work to kind of come to that. And I hate the fact that it came to that. But I'm just like, if I'm going to be completely honest, you know, yeah. about this so I can get better, that's what I have to say. Yeah. And I, don't, I didn't plan on saying this out loud here tonight. I'm not patronizing in any sort of way. But, you know, I take this recovery work very, very seriously. And he seems to be taking it very seriously, too. But I also think that if he is being serious about it, two years from now, he's going to look back on the interview and be just like, man, I just should not have done that. That's part of the recovery. He totally. You guys had talked about this, too, when you were talking about that episode about the whole love bombing thing because he goes into that talking Ooh. about you know he's the type of person that's basically just like gotta get you know carved name in your chest and stuff like that to kind of prove totally. his loyalty to a woman and stuff like that every woman was the one for me there was never a two if you liked me you were the one yeah. uh, and that had to do with my insecurity and my fear like i didn't have no there was no two or three or i was just dating like like frivolously it was always like this grand hair climbing up the super emotional, super uh, romantic, super uh, this fierce romance, you know, that I was searching for. Desperate little boy shit. And I'm just like, man, no, I feel attacked, right? But <laughs> because like, I would do that shit all the time. Yeah. Well, yeah. And also like him, I didn't go to the, the squad that he's in, the 60 dude squad. With Brolin and Penn. You know, yeah, he, he, he's acting like his old angels or whatever it is, but it's probably an AA meeting, I'm assuming. Yeah, we just ride. But I think it came to the same sort of revelation that I did when I went to that, you know, the Al-Anon meeting that I still go to, which is just like, oh, my problem my whole life hasn't been women. It's been men. Mm-hmm. How I interact with men is completely just made up. I'm always trying to kind of be something that I'm not. I mean, I was worried about how I was dressed, how I was talking. Like, and this is the other thing that I recognize about myself. And I'm so ashamed to admit this. But if I were John Bernthal, like having that interview with Shia, I would be talking like Shia the whole entire time. I would probably be saying dog and bro more than I normally do just to kind of keep up. Yeah. And, And the thing is, is I'm like, okay, I can say that out loud. Hopefully one day he says that out loud. Because I do believe 
in the fact that he is absolutely 100% willing to do whatever it takes to make himself better. I like the fact that he says, I'm going to owe my whole entire life. I like that too. Yeah, That's a a great thing to say Mm because that's true. Even if it's not true, it's basically just like if you're if you're doing this properly, mm-hmm. you are always finding a way to kind of just, you know, be of service to someone. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing that I've become very, very almost obsessive about. And this is back to the Jeffrey Tubman thing in the essay. But whenever I see someone who's going through a public trial has an essay written about how they were kind of just a, a sexual assaulter or something along those lines. I was just like, I am there for them. For the sexual assaulter. Yes. You know, because this is not because I absolutely just like, you know, I don't want this person to be punished. I just don't want this person to kill themselves. Because that's where mm-hmm. a lot of these guys are in those moments. Okay. Thinking that, and it's not because of just like the guilt over what they did. It's basically the public shame that comes on top. Mm-hmm. Where we can right. handle the guilt and basically take whatever sort of kind of punishment, criminal or otherwise, comes through that. But when you're not fully processing it, and then a magazine story is written about you, basically airing all of that and kind of just like you know, and you've got no comment because you can't say anything. That sort of pain is very, very unique, and that is the moment. It's a crisis point for a lot of these guys. Let's say one or two women that I've talked to were in these situations where it's just like, oh my gosh, I will never be human again. And and that's the part that I feel like I it's my responsibility to tell them that they are. That, you know, this isn't going to be something that will last forever in the way that you think it will. You can be True. a good person and use this experience to help others. And that's it. That that's really all. That's, I feel like it's my job to do that for people. And I think that that's part of just the, the spiritual program that I'm on. I'm certainly not doing it to be redeemed. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe Cheyenne is either. I don't think as, as much of a freak as, you know, Abel Ferrara is, this isn't the type of kind of promotional, you know, stuff that he wants for Padre Pio or whatever the fuck it is, right? I don't know. I would argue he does. But I think that the good parts of, of Shia's interview, I think, are, are very, very good. And I think are very important. Mm-hmm. And I think should be said out loud. Because I feel like the right people will hear that. And I'm putting myself in that camp as to just like, this was great for me to hear. And I've sent that interview to a lot of people. They are in recovery, basically being like, yeah, you know, this guy is, is doing some work here. I don't think he's doing all of it because he wouldn't be talking if he were with all of it correctly, but he is yeah. actually kind of doing this in a way that most people do not. I think that's healthy, and I think mm-hmm. that's good for the world. Now we can just tool on him about being sexy. There's nothing sexy about what I'm dealing with, and that's what makes me useful. As a woman, I have a hard time. My dad was wonderful in so many ways, but he was a liar, and so I'm, I'm both sympathetic to a man being interviewed who is so unrecovered despite his almost two years of recovery and saying these incredibly vulnerable things, which I really relate to, like being in relationships just because you can't believe that someone likes you. Right. Fully relate to that. Like that's an Alan thing. That's an ACA thing. I'm sure it's an AA thing. Like I'm just like, 
I can't believe you're still here. Oh my God. You know, like I'm going to sandwich pretzel my way into like any person I can be to be in this relationship. In his instance, he love bombed. He put people on a pedestal, whatever. That's what he says in the interview. So I relate to that. But then there's also this real anger that comes up for me listening to him because he's in such a, a bullshitty spiel in places, especially around, I think, his inability to reckon what happened with Twigs, who he keeps referring to as that woman in this interview. Which right, is right, right, right. A mistake. Just, and, and maybe... Yeah. He, well, that was the one thing that maybe he was like, I listened to my I voice. listened to it's like, no, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know? that's, that's, but every yeah. but everything else was like you kind of just said that you did the things that she's accusing you of doing. And yeah. which she decided later, which is abuse, physical abuse. Right. Yeah. And lying about having herpes, right. which is considered sexual battery in the state of California. So there's the rage on my part there because I believe her that he did those things. And then it comes back into, but I'm happy that he is talking about this stuff down to a ham-fisted description of reasoning as to why he only goes to men's meetings. He said it's, it's emasculating for him to be in a room with women when he's talking about being awful to women. Which I understand. I wish he hadn't said the word emasculating. I'm willing to eviscerate myself and emasculate myself and like, because I know that there's this grander purpose than like me trying to- 100%. Yeah, so so the reason I go to Strictly Men's Meetings is because you get, people do, dudes get vulnerable about the ugly shit. The shit that dudes don't want to talk about. But that's fucking real. I don't want to talk about bulimia in front of right. some guy. Like- I get that. And I'm glad that he said those things. I really am. I think that gender specific meetings are important for that reason. Yeah. However, it got filtered through the maze of whatever. He's he's, he's not ready to be talking about this as we we establish over and over again in this interview. 100%. And no one should. It's like, you know, I say it in the interview, and I'm sure you've heard this, AJ, in Al-Anon meetings, but like there's this three questions you're supposed to ask yourself. Does this need to be said? Does yes. it need to be said by me? Does it need to be said right now? <laughs> and the answer is always no. No, right? right? Like yeah. the answer is always no. And that right. has saved me from firing off nasty texts, emails, manipulating people, reacting, overreacting. Mm-hmm. You name it. And he is not there yet. And you're right that he will look back on this in five years and be like, oh, fuck, I shouldn't have done yeah, that. If, but if he's if you he's know? still I don't know. continues to recover. That's, a good, yeah. that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if he, as long as he point. keeps in this program, I, I think he'll feel that way. If he doesn't, then, yeah, he's still a fuck up, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I'll just give an, another take. Aaron, you give us your take. This is all well and good until it comes to rape, sexual battery, abuse, hitting, driving so fast you're going to throw somebody out of a car. And I feel like so often that behavior is blamed on alcohol use or or whatever, you know. But we all know people that have gone to the program by like court order. Yeah. Like, so we have that cultural thing where it's like you've committed a serious crime 
you need to go learn about DUIs are bad, you know, and you got to go to 12 step meetings. And that's like a state mandate. That's interesting to me. Um, Some people deserve to go to jail. Some people deserve to go to prison. Some people shouldn't get the mic until that trial is over. And yeah. so I was a little surprised mm-hmm. that you put in your essay, AJ, that mm-hmm. you would personally never sue anyone and you landed on the line because I wouldn't want to hurt someone like that. I would never do that to somebody. I just think that it's it's a such a dehumanizing and demoralizing process for both parties involved either mm-hmm. way, you know, and that. Going through that, just and I and I can't speak to the man personally because I mean he sues a lot of people, but in this case Hulk Hogan likes to handle that sort of stuff through the court because I think that's a business transaction for him in a lot of ways. But man, like you know, I did I didn't know how to keep up with myself. I didn't know what was the real me. I didn't know if it was my lawyer telling me just exactly just like this is the person that you are, and then you know having. Gawker's attorneys, which are completely separate, telling me that just like, no, this is the person that he is. And then I just still very early in recovery, picking up my limbs and figuring out who I actually am the whole time. Yeah. And just the whole process of going through that, having to be deposed and trying to figure out that there's going to be some part of me that's going to be given back to me because a a judge and a jury award me something. It will never happen. Right. Mm. It's it's still my responsibility to get through that hard thing, regardless of what it is, right? Mm-hmm. That's really what I'm, I'm saying, and and I think that that's that's just my choice, and I truly believe that just you know suing anybody, even for the most minor thing, slip and fall in the grocery store, is a hurtful thing to do to someone, right? I feel like I used to feel that way too especially about like tort law, like you're saying, like slipping on some ice. But then you look at the way the world works. And in America, if you don't sue, you're stuck with an $150,000 healthcare bill, you know, versus a corporation. Or you get raped and you can't go to the police because everybody knows how that fucking works out. Yeah, exactly. So it sounds like it sounds judgmental to me when you say, yeah. like, I would never want to do that to someone when it's like, but didn't Shia do something really bad to Twigs? And shouldn't she have the right to? Oh, yeah. Pay I'm, that? I'm saying just for me personally. I'm just saying for me I personally. I know. But yeah. I had that defensive reaction when I read that. I was right. just like, but what if somebody hurt you the way that? you know, Shia hurt her or yeah. somebody that you cared about. Right. Yeah. It and there very, was very no hard. justice. Yeah. It would be very, very hard to go. I would absolutely think about it differently and hope that I land on the same place that I am now. Yeah. But I could change hundred percent. And yeah. like, you know, my, my mother-in-law, I mean, deals with pediatric law and just as, you know, in the business of suing doctors for any sort of damage with the birth process or something like that it's it's righteous lawyering but you know she helps a lot of people doing Mm -hmm. what she does yes i completely understand that but i and i think i mentioned i did mention this in the essay but yeah last year we're watching like the the landscapers or something like that and yeah interrogation scene the deposition scene and she's 
she's doing her own commentary on top of it, basically just like, oh, I wonder why I wouldn't get, you know, talk to his lawyer before him. Why wouldn't they do it? And then I just got up. I, I just brings all of this stuff back. I feel like I'm yeah. smothered again. So me saying that is coming from a place that is not healed. Believe okay. me. And okay. I, 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 maybe I should have added that part, but it was in the section of not being healed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Where I'm like, I'm not on a percent. But this is a, a horrible thing that he has a history of doing to people mm-hmm. and his whole life. And I think that the way he says it is so moronic and doesn't help anyone the same. But when he says, you know, oh, that woman saved my life by mm-hmm. doing this sort of thing. I mean, it probably needed to happen that way in order for him to kind of see this exactly for what it is. Right. Right. He right. had to see this as abuse. He had to see those words. He had to see all of that stuff in order to kind of come to this place where he is now. Yeah. And also when we talk about, so the context for listeners, he says towards the end of this very long interview with John Bernthal in the second half that he was in rehab and Mia Goth, who was, he was previously married to, are they remarried or maybe yeah. they're just together? They remarried. Okay. He says in his own words in this interview that that marriage ended because he was too insecure and that, that she was the only person who came to visit him during like a family Zoom. And it works the same way. I had to go to this with my dad. Like, family days and rehab you're all in the same fucking room it's not you can't have a side conversation crazy to me yes and she came in and she just said hello and he starts crying and he says she you know and then it was on zoom Zoom. and um that she saved his life and i hope that they have the kind of relationship where she can talk about the ways that he hurt her or that they can talk about that enough that he can take that into his recovery. Right. The one thing that I will say, and I said it in the interview, I think that John Bernthal does a lot of dumb stuff in that interview, but he does say, <laughs> push him to be like, so what did you, like, what comes next from this? If you did do these things, what's to be learned? What is the takeaway? Like, everything's falling apart what comes next and that seems to be something that he understands that he has Mm -hmm. no choice like you said that he'll be paying for the rest of his life he says doing dishes which i think is a dumb example working at home depot working at home depot so insulting to people that legitimately work at home right exactly john's like well how about restaurant work and he's like oh no i can't do that think you could work at home depot yeah you think you, think you have the skills uh, thousand for percent. It, but you think you understand the yeah. inventory of home i spend depot. so much time in home depot dog do you? yeah that's a church for me yeah home depot are you is... building a lot are you working with yeah, your yeah. Hands? i'm okay. in home depot all the time okay so you feel like i love you home depot a, what, what what's another job you feel like you you you, you could do that that would both serve you and your mission you feel like you'd be good at oh just any kind of like regular shit like regular like do you think you could work in a kitchen? No. He still got the ego. No, he still got the ego. But I do think that what he's doing, if he continues to stay in recovery and progress, you know, 20 years from now, that hopefully right. he can look back and be like, I shouldn't have done that interview now. And here's how right. I've made my life an amends, like the whole concept yeah. of a living amends. Men's like, living amends, yeah. It's not doing dishes for me a god. Exactly. It's, I don't yes. hit anymore. I don't yes. lie. 
And when I want to, I talk about it with my sponsor. I go to a meeting. I talk to my therapist. I talk to someone that's safe about it. I talk to my wife about it. Right. Whatever it is. I talk to my daughter about it. I talk because very good point. Take it back to the whole point of this shit. And I want to take it back to that family day or whatever, which went on for months, he said, before Mia Goth showed up. His mother didn't come. His father didn't come. And now the real reason why I'm just like, what is fucking wrong with this guy is that he doesn't just absolve his father of the abuse that I believe was committed upon his body as a small child because he wrote Honey Boy all about it. He played his father and that was so intense. And not only that, AJ, he is like calling himself a liar. And I just thought that was so fucked up. I don't know. That doesn't sound like good recovery vibes. We got to not use the word vibe with him because the whole vibe is terrible. It's not how you're supposed to sound at all, right? The vibe is bad. Yeah, it ain't sexy, man. The vibe ain't sexy. It's not sexy. What I do ain't sexy. But God, we know. I mean... He should be calling himself a liar. He was a liar because I think historically where I always used to lie. And I had a very, very close call with this just a few days ago where it's just, but I'm so locked into my, my newfound principles at this point. I may have like hit someone in a parking lot and I, and I was just like, and I didn't stop and right. look to see if there was any damage. And I'm coming back and I'm making Julianne go because I had to come back and get the kids. <laughs> And I was just like, Julian, you just got to go back and see if I hit this person. Here's a oh note. My Here's my thing. And she's just like, you know, you live in the fucking city. This happens all the time. Like, I mean, just like you didn't hit a person. Let's Right. Man, their car. Man, yeah. Like, a ding. Just like, a, a ding. Right. Mm-hmm. But in my head, because I didn't stop and look, that was a complete collapse of okay. everything yeah. I've been working for. Right. Yeah. And I'm so paranoid about that stuff because i feel like that is just one step in the wrong direction to where i can completely turn into the person that i used to be right mm-hmm. i mean i think his whole life has been a performance and i think yes. you you guys clued into that and he's still trying to figure out exactly what the truth is right yeah how does he do this without telling a story how does he do this without doing a monologue how does he do this 100 somebody and you're so right so yeah. to, to call himself out at least on that part great start for me, right? Yeah. I mean, it really is. Aaron, you and I struggled with that where, and I remember the first time we interviewed AJ, we told you to see Honey Boy. We were yeah. like, you hadn't seen I know, it yet. and I loved and it. And we were and like, oh my God, God, you have to see it. And I had the same, I felt angry with him when he said I made the whole thing up. Did, I don't believe that they did either. I think he's my, just in, I think he's, I think he's in the mode of protecting his father. I think so too. And I think in my most charitable read of it, it's what you're saying, AJ, which is like, you're several years into the program. He is not, he yes. is still pretty new. And I remember I took a break from Al-Anon and then my dad died and I went through this terrible breakup. This is like four years ago. Right. And I was like, my therapist told me to stop going. She told me to go to Alan. And she was yeah. like, maybe not every day or like yeah. maybe not multiple meetings. Right. I was like, I'm sick. 
And, you know, here's all the ways that I'm sick. And I do think, and I've heard other people say this, that when you're new, of course, there's the pink glasses, there's the, you know, the fog of recovery where everything's great. But then I think there can be the reverse of that or other side of it where you're sick. You have to overcorrect everything because you don't want to go back to what got you into the room. 100%. Yeah. And so it's like, I mean, it makes me want to throw up saying this, but people are like rigorous honesty, rigorous vulnerability. Yeah. I feel like people use that as an excuse to cheat on their partner. That's another podcast. It's another, phrases, it's another 12 step program. Yeah, totally. Those phrases make me want to throw up. But I do think that that's what he thinks he was doing, Aaron, that he's mm-hmm. like, oh, I kind of lied about maybe my oh. dad didn't hit me at this time, as I said in the movie, but. I certainly have a history of starting at age 19, giving interviews where I say he hit me. He held guns to my head. He blah, 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 blah. And his father is a sex offender. You know, like he's not a good guy. Yeah. And that's the and that's the part of it. He's not a good guy. Like, no, I'm not saying that he's a he's not a good guy, but his dad. I'm saying the dad. His dad is a troubled person. And I think that when my, this is a very meandering way of saying that maybe there's an over-identification on Shia's part. That's like, just as he is. That's what, that's what I think. I I had the same exact read on it. He's not in the trashing his dad business right now. Right now. Right. Yeah. Once he gets uh, some removed from all this, he's going to look back and say, well, yeah, I'm still a guy that was writing a script. I had to tell a story. I played my dad in this movie. This Still is. a sex offender, rodeo clown, fucking yeah. alcoholic. I mean, like, you know. Frog addict. The thing, too, that, like, steps out to me was just about the whole ego death stuff. Like, <laughs> crack me up. Because he's he clearly doesn't understand what that means at no. all at this point. But the thing about the Home Depot part, too, which, again, I was just, like, could relate to Amazing. way too closely. Yeah. Was that when I went back to florida for like outpatient treatment and just to like kind of convalesce after the trial i was going to get a sober job and you know that was what people were telling me to do so i put in an application at this bagel store that was like around the corner from this place but what i did where it said like you know write three references i wrote down mark cuban's name and number (laughs) on application to this bagel store which one thing is insane to do so because it's I'm clearly not haven't learned a thing at this point. But also, Mark Cuban would not give me a good reference. He <laughs> <laughs> would not. Oh my god! So I was still in that mode where it's just like, oh well, I'm going to be important to this person. I, I'm right. this is a bagel store job, and I got to let people know that I'm taking a bagel store job right. to be amongst the hoi polloi here, but. This is who I used to work with before, right? And right yeah. I, think that, I think that's exactly what Shia would be doing with the Home Depot job. But I hope he heals. I hope because I think, he again, like at the end of this, if he is completely committed to the mission that he's on right now, and I will call it a mission because he seems to have used that language a lot. In a lot of yeah. This is going to be such an important interview, right? If you I stick to it. fully agree with that. I just... Someone needs to recover in public, AJ, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, and own the shit. Own right. it. Talk about it. It sucks. You wish you hadn't done it. And I'm going to keep trying to do better by committing yes. to recovery and doing things differently. 
I think he almost got it. I think that because you were involved in a 12-step program and also just like, you know, very, very attuned to just, you know, the type of guy that Shia is, right? Yeah. And I feel very much in touch with a lot of things that he's saying that I make me, you know, wince because I'm just like, oh, that's too real. I, I understand exactly what he's saying. It's not yeah. an probation thing. And, um, you know, I, I think that more people should recognize exactly what needs to happen when you do go into these sort of programs mm-hmm. that you absolutely do have to kind of just talk about this stuff that is unmentionable, the stuff that you hid from your whole life in order to kind of get to a different place and help other people. Mm-hmm. That's it. I mean, it's just like, you know, you only help yourself if you do help other people. He seems to have a great grasp of that. And I fully believe that he's committed to doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually do have some faith in him kind of getting to the place where I think he thinks he already is. Why do you think this? Do you feel, let me rephrase. Sure. Do you feel that everyone is capable of recovery and that everyone deserves grace? Mm, um, No, I don't. Okay. I want to hear more about that. I want to hear about your line. I think what most people are like do bad things and then begin to talk about this is that they are doing this so they can work again or to make their agents happy or to make mm-hmm. the studio happy or just like lower their insurance rates on the movie motion picture that they have to do because mm-hmm. that stuff exists that stuff has existed historically mm-hmm. yeah and i think if someone is faking it that's fucked up that hurts everybody that's why there is the anonymous part in that, because they, people will fuck that up all the time. And okay. obviously, I am not anonymous, and I do talk about all of this stuff publicly, but I also you know, feel a strong sense of responsibility yeah. to basically say that just like, yeah, I shouldn't be doing this either. It just kind of happened this way, where I mentioned it to a, a magazine writer, and they wrote about it, and that's mm-hmm. that. But the best part for me was, again, that I will go back to this, that Chaya is absolutely saying things that nobody has said out loud before that I've okay. ever heard. Fair. Where he, fair. Is, where he is like absolutely covered to be an abusive person. Okay. And I also agree he should remove himself from that equation. He should just like go straight to the people that he's abused and leave himself out of it at this point. We know you were bad to yourself. Mm-hmm. Everybody, yeah. you're not you're not in this program if you're not right. but at the same time the shit he was saying you know the craziest thing was which i i couldn't i don't know if i misheard it or not but he was talking about the first aa meeting he went to like after this time around and he was just like the woman that was there was taking a chip and he just like last time i saw her i lost my virginity to her and I held a knife to her name. yes this is where i'm talking about like miraculous shit started to pop off in my life and my, my dude sent me there because his mom was taking a chip for like 37 years. And the woman who took a chip right after his mother was the woman I lost my virginity to. Who, when I was 19 years old, I held a knife to her neck. And everything in that moment, it felt like I heard God's voice say, I'm everywhere. You can't run no more. And like my whole fucking, all my planning and like all this, like, just went gone. And, um. That really happened, you know? And I remember it vivid. So think of this person's life, right? And the fact that that is a throwaway little foot in this person's history of relationships and to women and just like himself and all this and like that. 
Like, I mean, there is a real sort of, he's got so many dark factors in his life that this step to me does feel like he understands that if he doesn't go this route and he doesn't stick to it the whole time, he's going to lose everything, right? Mm -hmm. All of this new love that he has in his life will be demolished. Mm -hmm. And I, I truly believe that he knows that. And I, and I 100% think that he will do everything possible to stay there. Mm. It'll be hard when that trial comes around. It'll be so hard because it's just, you know, he's going to have to relive a lot of things in public that he can relive in these rooms right now. And that's safe. The fact that he was talking about that, he still like looks at his name on Twitter. I'm like, Jesus Christ, man. You know, yeah. like, I mean, I just started doing that again and it's not, it's not great. You know, I can't imagine if he's doing it and then also kind of just like you know him being honest about the fact that like yeah i was going to open up an account and start like firing back at people like that i'm like man yeah you know great information to have about him because i like that part of him i like the fact that he's like human in that way yeah and that he's he is this person that is going through this very big public thing but he's also very concerned still concerned about the fact that how he looks and how other people think of him right totally because, I mean, there's a thing that he comes up as like someone who doesn't give a shit what people think. Yeah. Like the opposite. <laughs> right. right. Did, you, did you catch in the interview, both of you, He there's one point where he's like, I need to change the octave of my voice right now. It sounds like I'm bullshitting if I say it right. this way. Sometimes it's difficult to like, to show up for the love. To show up for the love that people are throwing at you. Because you think you're, you know, you think you are these Twitter comments. You think you are this idea of what you, what, uh, fuck, I got to get out of this octave because I sound like boohoo bullshit. Nah, but, come on, being you, bro. Yeah, but I don't want to be it's, fucking performative for it, your it, shit. It, it, but, dude, just. He seems to be, to your point, AJ, deeply cognizant of what needs to be done. But I wonder if you, you must relate to that, your reference to like asking your wife to go back and leave the note if i don't do this i could go back so if i yeah. don't do the things i could risk losing my family uh, exactly built. Yeah. and and this essay that we were talking to you about this is not your story ends with doing a qualification which for people listening when you talk for 15 to 20 minutes and 12 steps yeah. about your the right. strength that you've gotten the hope you've got strength and hope Experience, strength, and hope. Yes. And you end it by talking about the fact that you have three beautiful kids and a wife and that a woman yeah. in the room gasped. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that was, that was me. Story. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And ladies and gentlemen, it was Aaron. It was <laughs> I mean, who gasped. No, but that there was a collective. woman who gasped and that she came up to you afterwards and said, what to you? The quote wasn't direct, but she was, she was assuming that that I was saying, oh, you know, this trial happened and my girlfriend got pregnant. Oh, that was something that he didn't want to happen. So they ended the pregnancy, et cetera, mm -hmm. just like that. So he, and, and that's what she thought had happened in that thing. Because how could he possibly, how could they make that last given the circumstances that they had drawn out okay. at that time? She was just like, yeah, I didn't expect that end at all. Like, you know, yeah. that was not something I expected to have happen. Well, let's talk about that because... I feel like you're projecting a little when you say that Shia feels this way because he knows he's going to lose every, yeah. his family, right? Right. So in recovery, right, you're not supposed to. It's not a good idea. 
to do what you and Shia both did. Both did, yeah. 100%. So talk about that. I was not very sober when all that stuff was happening. <laughs> so when they, yeah. like, I didn't even know that was a rule, right? Oh, um, okay. okay. Wait, what's, can we tell the people at home what the rule is? What is the rule that you're In your first to? year of recovery, you're not supposed to make any sort of drastic big life changes. You're not supposed mm -hmm. to move, take a new job, like, you know, get married, like start in a relationship. Mm -hmm. Get super or, 150 million dollar, you know, or like, become oh, a father yeah. for the first time. Yeah, <laughs> I absolutely had a bingo card full of the things you're not supposed to do. Yeah, but it was also, you know, I can't say that it didn't work out. It did, and you have three children. Did. Yeah, three. Yes. Look, I mean, it's 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 one of those things where. None of that was possible unless I went through the hard thing. Like, mm -hmm. you know, the hard thing needed to happen for me to have all of this love in my life now. Right. Mm -hmm. That's what I think he sees. And, okay. and that I think that that's a lot of the part where he goes back to being useful, et cetera. I believe his commitment to that. And okay. that's huge. To that's, have a and, commitment. You know, to be, to being a different person and a better man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough to admit that you want to be a better man. It really is. Especially that guy. Come on. I mean, he is a fucking creep. Like, yeah. I mean, in every single possible way. Yeah. So believe me, I am completely fascinated by him. It's just like, and and I, I have always pants. felt a kinship <laughs> to him in a lot of ways, for sure. And thought he was extremely talented. But I am like, man this guy's trouble like he's he's so smell it on him right and yeah. i have to sit there and basically say to myself i'm just like oh shit i bet you people think of me that way i know i'm a bad memory for a lot of people i know that i there are some people i will never be able to make amends to i think that some people just want you to go away mm -hmm. and that's the hardest thing for he's gonna have to learn is that basically just like yeah some people do not want you around Yeah on the screen on their headphones or a podcast like that and that's hard and i have to remember that constantly too but your life has gotten so much better which you've just said and your writing has gotten like leaps and bounds i mean were you even writing before or were you just like you know it's weird that you say that because i mean i thought i was but it didn't you know it didn't really start to click for me until maybe three, four years ago in terms of just like, oh, yeah. here's the here's the way I want to write an essay. And now I have to kind of work at getting to that, be that. Yes. First. It is a skill that I recognize I have to develop constantly. And I want to do that. Where before, I mean, I kind of knew where all the holes in my game were. And I would just like overcompensate by, you know, being a, a stunt asshole. But you know, interestingly enough, I mean, when I first started writing in New York I and mean, I was like 25 and I would write these little funny, sad essays for every single Internet place that would take me do it. Sure. I mean, I, I recently came across some of those and I'm like reading them I'm like, you know, that's actually closer to the way I'm writing now than it was you know, five, six, seven, eight years ago. Whatever. Okay. Weirdly enough. Chicken yeah, soup for the gulf for a soul. That's right. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm a mawkish, sentimental guy. I mean, I could absolutely <laughs> do that stuff. 
I know I can write something that's going to make people cry. I know when I write about my kids on the small yeah. boat, oh, I'm going to get a response this from this <laughs> set of people. I know that. But I'm also trying to connect with those people, too. And that's what a writer has to do. Well, you know, that's because the thing about the love bombing thing about Shia, too, where he was talking about all the relationships that he had, where it's basically kind of just like, you know, uh, swears devotion to someone, then cheat on them constantly. Right. Yeah. That was always his kind of pattern of behavior. And yeah, and cheat on everybody, but a lot. I mean, a lot of my relationships fell apart for that very reason. And and in my mind, I'm basically just like, well, I'm doing this for their benefit so they don't have to kind of work with all this shit that I got to go through, right? You know, that's like in my head, that's what I'm thinking and believing it too. Yeah. That, I mean, it's just like, yes, I want everyone to love me, but I'm incapable of giving it back because I hate myself. Right. I mean, and and as much as that sounds like something that I am saying just as an excuse, it's not. But it always brings up this this very specific moment for me. I, I told you about the couch, right, Aaron? Mm-hmm. Like, so when you passed out on your roommate's couch, her no, laptop. No, oh, that's this a different is, story. Okay. Yeah, no, this okay. is. I was dating a woman for about a month, coming off of another kind of you know tempestuous relationship that kind of exploded, and then I'm completely 100 percent in love with this new person, and we we're going to start to build a life together, and then you know we were dating but she was unsure about me and then i was supposed to meet up with her after i was out with my friends and supposed to meet with her at 11 o'clock 6 a.m rolls around not there i'm out someplace else and i roll into her apartment at eight o'clock in the morning she's all mad and she's just like you know i i I knew this about you and stuff like that this is something you got to change in yourself cut to like maybe two days before we're walking around uh, brooklyn and window shopping at this fancy furniture store and there's this couch in the window which she basically says just like oh that's my jam right and yeah. that's me and you know so i take note of it as an apology to me not showing up on time i buy her this couch like twenty five hundred dollars right you know so this couch shows up to her apartment while i'm there now also great she has a couch too this and what floor comes, is she on she's on the second floor because the new york but, couch is different but it's a, it's kind of a couch kind of a love seat but it's still it's like a you know 400 square foot apartment or whatever like that yeah. she gets this couch and she's looking at it and she's just like wow this is impressive he's going yeah. to these lengths to basically make an apology and then yeah. she's just like, can you even afford this? You know, because again, it was a $2,500 couch. And I'm like, yeah, of course. And I had like $2,700 in my account, obviously, <laughs> you know. Technically, right. I could afford it. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's what affording it means, right? But that's the sort of behavior I would engage in constantly, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, same. It seems like he did the same shit. And it was sincere at the time. Mm-hmm. But it's also because I had my wirings all screwy that I feel like, oh, if I do the bad thing just to make sure to let people know that I'm not going to do the bad thing again, here's what I'm going to do. Yeah. Right. Love me. Yeah. I'm lovable. Love me. Ugh. Love me. Via so exhausting. Couch. Right? Yeah. But I never knew that that was manipulating someone or basically kind of being deceptive. I didn't know any of that. I know. Like, yeah. I, I truly did not. I didn't know that just like that that's toxic behavior. Yeah. I yeah. Know. I thought that was the only way that people would love me. Same. Yeah. Right? I bought the couch and I've been, I've received the couch. 
I've been on both sides of that dynamic and it's no, all exhausting. Yeah, what are you were talking about? Just like you know how love bombing's exciting. It's, it's, it's very so exciting you know, when you have it done to you. It's, it's exhilarating, right? Yeah, right. It feels yeah. great. I remember being so shocked that like when a therapist told me that I was being manipulative, like if you know years ago when I was right. like describing something with a boyfriend at the time, and that I thought I had done something nice, and she was like, right. "You're you're manipulating him," and being so. Yeah, who knew that that was like what you right. were being, who, right? Right. You know, how do I show affection? Yeah, especially if you grow up in houses where people are not withholding and <laughs> lying and yeah, hypocritical and, and resentful. You know, like as soon as the door shut, it's you know mumbling to themselves about the family member that's just left or the competitive family. with their Very own bad. children. It's hard. And I think, I guess my question to you is, you mentioned before that there are people that you have hurt that mm -hmm. you just, they don't want to hear from you. And, right. it's, you know, there's a language for this in AA and Al-Anon and most 12-step, which is to make an amends unless doing so would bring harm to that person. Yeah. Right. right. So yeah. translation, don't fucking contact someone if it's going to hurt them, them. To, to hear from you or uh, hurt or just disrupt and kind of just like make it uh, about you yeah there are just some people in my life who i dated 20 years ago who have you know, moved on right. have a family of their own like that you know what am i gonna do call them up and just say yeah here's the 300 dollars yeah. that i stole from you yeah yeah, yeah. You know? i mean it's like because I think it would be that would be so strange and destabilizing to someone to be on the opposite end of that. Yeah. Or would also feel because I had this experience, you know, not even in a recovery sort of way where there was this one of my college girlfriends had given me a scrapbook way back in like 1995. And she included some family photos of her that was uh. part of like some inside joke that we had and then cut to. 30 years later, and I'm in transit from kind of just like in Brooklyn to LA, and, and these boxes are everywhere. And a guy that was like holding on to all my stuff sent me back a bunch of things. And he's just, and in there is this book from this girl. And I'm just like, oh, she probably wants these back. These right. are family photos, right? Haven't talked to her in 30 years at that point, but Google her. Oh, she lives in New York. Oh, look, she's married. And then email her, all excited that I like, hey, I got this thing. And I mean, she re responded, but you could tell it was not welcome, right? Mm -hmm. This is like, I was like, was underneath her bed and just grabbed her ankle, uh -huh. you know, yeah. like that sort of thing. And I obviously didn't want anything, but I mean, it seemed like very unstable behavior to her that I was reaching mm -hmm. out to give her these things that she probably didn't even, she didn't even remember. And yeah. like didn't need to know about right mm -hmm. at all so i mean that's kind of just like you know where i think this it wasn't necessarily yeah. causing harm to her but yeah it's probably one of those days where just like this is fucked up this is unnecessary and yeah is this person going to stalk me now right and she yeah. knows nothing about me you know? yeah and it can set the stage for like being manipulative where someone is so caught off guard that you're contacting them that they're 100%. like, sure, yeah, I forgive you. Like, why the fuck are you? I miss you. Yeah. This thing from, right. Yeah. You know, 20 I mean, years so, ago. I mean, 
I really think about that more than you're learning else, yeah to where That's it's good. just like oh i'm not going to kind of just screw up someone's day you have to kind of know better that you know there are some things that have passed the expiration date is over and that's it but mm-hmm. the idea about being kind of right-sized to use this language and kind of being on the mm-hmm. other end of this is that if i'm in a situation where it's just you know, i got to go to a wedding or a funeral and run into one of these people i can't go across the other side of the room I yeah. have to be kind of just like accepting of whatever sort of like response is there for me. Slap in the face, water thrown at me, whatever, you know, or just like, you know, here's a hug. That's it. It doesn't have to be anything more than that. Yeah. I'm curious about like, so the small bow, you've been doing it for years. And I follow you guys on Instagram and people that I'm friends of friends of friends with, I see liking your stuff. You have reached people. You are doing something that people need and relate to. But I wonder if in turning this into collection of essays, which will eventually be a book, there's going to be added attention on you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Potentially. And so that's then- a lot of the holdup what I have with the proposal. I mean, yeah. that's like, is I, because I, 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 oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, is it, but it, what I was going to ask you is like, is there the wedding funeral? This person could be there. Do you worry about that coming back? via the book as well about having to navigate people potentially publicly or you mentioned like looking at yourself on twitter looking your name up again yeah that that will set gasoline on that fire for you yeah i mean it's it's inevitable in some ways i just have to make sure that i have to i'm comfortable with everything i'm putting out there in the sense that just like i'm doing this for the right reasons Mm -hmm. like that's the thing i don't feel any sort of like need it's going to be hard to thinking about all the stuff about potential publicity for the book it's going to be hard to kind of sell this as a small bow book and not as the dude that got fucking whacked in the Oscar trial book like mm-hmm. i mean 99 percent of the people that are going to be interested in like you know talking to me are going to want to talk about that part and that part specifically uh-huh. and completely erase the other what will probably be nine or ten years that have gone into kind of doing all this work that I'm doing now. Mm -hmm. And that's the one thing that people will care about. But I mean, the reality is, it's just, you know, look, I mean, yeah, I mean, I did some like, you know, shitty blog stuff, but at the same time, I mean, just like I'm working on the human that was behind all that stuff. I'm not trying to correct the record about like, you know, my professional life at all. whatsoever. But I mean, do, am I fearful? I remember I did go to one funeral one time and it was a bunch of, high school people that I hadn't seen or heard from for a while. And it was 2010, 2011. So it was pretty soon after like the the GQ article that was written about me and Deadspin at the time had come out and I was getting all this attention. So, I mean, going back to kind of my hometown, thinking that my hometown was, you know, not aware of any of this stuff. I remember Someone writing me on Facebook, it was really good to see you. I'm really happy about all the success that you're having, right? And that kind of rattled me. I'm just like, Mm. oh, shit, there are people talking about me. That's that's when all the voices in your head start to go off. What are they saying? Are they saying good things? Is there people that don't like me? They were saying bad things, you know? Mm -hmm. So the fact that those conversations will inevitably happen, as they always do in these sort of situations, yeah, that worries me a lot. Because yeah. it's like, I don't like going back to that place. But, and that's the thing where it's just, you know, I, the, the small bow is relatively small, mm-hmm. kind of exists in this little vacuum. 
And I've kind of created this little island for myself. I've reached escape velocity here in the small bow, but doing a book, going on some sort of press tour, then I'm at the mercy of other people. Then the story is not mine anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, that's an interesting read on it because I was going to say, yeah, the story is not yours anymore. But I think so much of like what makes the small bow feel super recovered to me is that you have this chorus of voices. You have a section, an anonymous that I almost always cry reading of people being like, I hate myself. I relapsed. I bought seven sweaters off Instagram at three in the morning. I lied to my husband about drinking. I ignored my kids today. Right. They're so real. Yeah. And so it is a community. And now it is just you in the book of essays. Yeah. But I mean, that's the part that I mean, ultimately, I have to kind of sit there and say that as long as that my my readership and as long as like, you know, Aaron and as yeah. long as, you know, my wife and my family are basically there kind of just like knowing that my intentions are good with this, mm-hmm. I, I can't worry about anything else. Exactly. Because right? you know? it's yeah. for the readers. Yeah. You know, that's what the title refers to, too. It's like not your story, but also to all the people listening. You're not defined by the worst mistake of your life or what you because the thing is like i know the trial was like the worst thing that ever happened to you and it was the public embarrassment and the shame but i can also promise you that a lot of people are on your side and always were and it's not to my mind it's not the same as shia labeouf situation but i respect that you need the, you know who I talked to are... after the trial? <laughs> you know, Roland. Pen. Well, Cuddy. did they reach out to yeah. you? Did you get the star treatment? Um, no, I didn't. I didn't. I'm I surprised. Didn't no, there was okay. one person, uh, you know, and I think I wrote about this person. There was like a person that is a, you know, a sports writer who I barely had any interaction with oh, who yeah. wrote me like 23, 24 times over the span of kind wow. of just like a year and a half just to check in and see if I was okay and wish me wow. well from his household. And yeah. I was like, you know, initially it was just like, oh, this person's rubbernecking and just wants to kind of say that he touched base with me. Because there's a lot of those sort of people. But no, this person was just genuinely, he didn't know if anybody was supporting me, but he wanted to say that he was. Mm-hmm. Just because of the fact he wanted to make sure that someone was checking in on me and looking out for me. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, yeah, I want to be that guy. That's what I want to be. It's why I'm grateful that you wanted to do this interview, AJ, but why you're writing this book. And I know these are hard things to talk about and things to admit to and things from your past and the sides of ourselves that we don't like and that we're trying to change. And right. that's why Aaron and I really appreciate you and appreciate the small bow. And wanted to do our podcast, period. It's what you said that my issue wasn't with women. It was with other men. Yes. And the fact that you are doing this work publicly is that is it to me. That's it. That's it. And I think that's what Shia thought he was doing on on real woods. Yeah. And he got lost in the Shia fog. But that's okay. That's okay. (laughs) 
But like, I think that's what he thought he was doing. And maybe he'll come out of the fog. But like, it is so fucking important for men to talk to other men about these things. Because it's just kind of the only way that I think anything will ever change or get better. And to women. So I thank you for saying that to us specifically. Not, Not just because it's on our show, but I feel healed seriously mm-hmm. when I can meet any man who can talk about their feelings, their insecurity. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is an old cliche too. Like women like to talk and they like to listen to yeah. their men, but I'm serious. Yeah. We're talking about the larger culture. You know, we picked Shia and Army because they're both actors right. and that's part of it and it's like about society protecting its men over its children and its women you know or its trans you know there just is that thing and so i feel like you're you're reaching out and you're saying there's more equality than before you hid behind the masculine bros club i guess and now you're not Mm mm-hmm like I said, I mean, I, if I were interviewing, like John Bernthal is the guy that I absolutely, would, John Bernthal always struck me as the guy that's just like, oh, there's the guy who's going to kind of just like fight the bully for you, right? Mm-hmm. That was kind of He's how it comes up. Big brother. And yeah. And I think that like Shia is drawn to him for that reason in the same way that mm-hmm. I would be. And when sure, Shia sure. was talking about how he was just like kind of the, you know, drawn to people who had like these groups and this consistency in their life that mm-hmm. like that's the thing he admired the most about kind of just you know the dude that was the ex-navy seal was not the fact that he was a navy seal but the fact that he had a whole bunch of navy seals that would show up at his house yeah should anything happen to him because mm-hmm. i was just like man that almost made me cry because i'm basically like yeah that's what i have been craving my whole life mm-hmm. i never like to use the word regret but i mean it's just like the way that i mishandled my male friendships in my life historically Mm -hmm. like has been 20 times worse than i've ever handled many of my other relationships just because you know i had i had a squad when i was in high school you know i had Mm -hmm. people that would like kind of just whose birthday weeks were basically very important weeks they were you know for that i needed to be there for Mm -hmm. that nothing else would come in the way of that I knew people would like, you know, reach out to me and contact me. My birthday week was special to other people. Mm-hmm, I don't mm-hmm. have that. I don't have that group of people in my life that, outside of my family, obviously. But those friendships are ones that I botched because I was like mm-hmm. way too insecure, yeah. way too kind of just, you know, I, I was self-conscious and I was always kind of just like being like in some sort of competition that I couldn't, I couldn't win. So I would just mm-hmm. bolt. Feeling the absence of those male friendships in my life is is a really, really dark place. You know, and the time when I just started playing golf with a group of guys who were just, you know, I, I don't like golf that much. Obviously, it reminds me of my dad. I always thought that a relationship would give me the chip and ignored a lot of my friendships. A romantic yes, relationship. Okay. Yes. yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like basically being like, oh, well, you know, I have to prioritize my career and mm-hmm. whoever I'm dating in my life, those are the two most important things because then mm-hmm. I will be fulfilled and everything else will come after that. I'm not going to have any friends unless I can prove that someone else loves me mm-hmm. or that I have a a 
job, which is kind of cool. I thought yeah. those were the two most important things and then everything else would come after that. When yeah. reality was, it was just like, I, I absolutely should have stuck to the friendships mm -hmm. that were very, very important to me that were not like that. That were, I treated as transactions mm -hmm. or something that I couldn't compete with or that they were, you know, not the type of people that I needed for my success or something along those lines. Have you forgiven yourself or is it a process? I, I've forgiven myself on certain things. But, you know, like I was just saying about the, the parking lot situation, just like, oh, my God, should I call? Should I <laughs> On call? myself. <laughs> should I turn myself should I call, in? Yeah. Should I call the shopping center to get the tape from the camera that was probably... Right. Oh, my God, people? I did the same or, thing. Yeah. And basically, so I can track down this person and kind of, you know, reach out to them and basically being like, you know, if there's a chip of paint off of your bumper, I am here. To right this wrong, right? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. When normal people are, are essentially just like, okay, it was an accident, my bad. I was in a rush. Sorry, whatever. Like, yeah. I, I will. Yeah, it happens all the time. But yeah, to me, I am like, this is this is why you have no friends. Also, and this is just like, I, I started doing Brazilian Jiu Jitsu in the last couple months too. Sure. You know, sure. this way of like overcoming some of this fear and insecurity that I've had in my life to kind of walk into these places that feel very cold and unwelcoming and physically very hard. And then to get humiliated every time. I mean, some <laughs> of it's just like masochistic. I mean, some of the guys are just like, oh, oh, I love it when this person chokes me to death. <laughs> like, not, maybe this isn't the sport for me. But um, it's taught me just like, you know, I because I had a situation with a dude because i mean it is and i don't know if you guys are familiar with it but i mean you're in there they're making a fight real early on with strangers and it's no striking involved but i mean it's wrestling and choking and yanking arms and all this wow. kind of stuff and you need to kind of know what you're doing or else it gets real clumsy and ugly and all this kind of stuff Ooh. but what led to kind of just like the parking lot day was i was in class with a person and we'll never be best friends and that's it. And it was a very small class. Most of the time we can avoid each other, but we couldn't and we had to spar. I've been sick for like the past three weeks. So I haven't been in class in a little while and he's gotten pretty good. He's also just, you know, he's, he's tall and he's bony and he's like, he's tough to handle within a second. He's got my arm trapped. And I can feel my elbow dislocating and I'm tapping and blah, blah. And he kind of yanked a bit. But if I hadn't been so insecure about me not being there for three weeks or so upset that I clearly, this person has passed where I was before, I mm -hmm. probably wouldn't have said anything, but I did. And I got like a little kind of just like cross with the dude where I'm just like, yeah, you can't yank like that. And truth is he had every right to do it. And because the answer, and this is the great part about this little sport, is that it's like mm -hmm. the answer to most of these kind of just like, you know, dust-ups is get better at jujitsu. Mm -hmm. I have it's my responsibility. Okay. And that's the part that I love where it's just like it's very, very in line with all of the spiritual work that I'm doing. So I got real upset with myself in that moment too, because I'm just like, yeah, I don't know. He did nothing wrong. I acted like he was doing. I was being a little bitch, you know. Sorry to talk like Shia. Well, but I mean, it was just like, but I had that sitting on top of my chest when I was in that parking lot. And mm -hmm. like, you know, I'm leaving jujitsu. Oops, I may have like, you know, 
ding somebody, but I'm too preoccupied with all this other shit to deal with that. So I got to like focus and get out of here. And that just made me mad too. All of this kind of just like, you know, negative stuff that's piling on top of me made me feel like such a little kid again. You know, mm -hmm. here's my dad yelling at me. Here's me hiding. I got to like talk to the professor. That's what he called the teacher. Mm -hmm. Like, um, you know, about this guy because wow. he's clearly not doing anything right. Like excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse. Blame this person, blame this person, blame this person. Or blame me. And the easiest route is just like to blame me. So I will never go back to that classroom again. I will just move out of the city so I never have to do things like that. I will go to the cops, <laughs> yeah. turn myself in, go to jail. And then, but I mean, that was the thing where it's just, you know, I go back to my therapist this week and I tell him about the whole thing. And he's just like, when are you ever going to give yourself a break? Yeah. And I'm like, well, when am I supposed to? And that's what I'm learning. I like that you said my responsibility because it might seem foreign to people listening who don't hate themselves. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people do. And a lot yeah. of people listening are probably in recovery. And I do think it's your responsibility to be a, a dispassionate observer of your own bullshit in those moments, right? I, I, to keep right. yourself yeah. from going off the rails and being like, it's his fault. I wasn't here for three weeks. And but I mean, that's the, part. the worst because I yeah. was sick, but this guy sucks. And, you know, it's like, that's me every day of my life. <laughs> that's my voice. That's pretty much it. That's what I sound like. But thing is, and this is the part where I recognize that it's just oh, all of these principles go to shit when I panic. And that's what I got to learn how to do better. It's just like in these situations, I got to kind of hold on to this stuff. And I got to mm -hmm. be cognizant of the fact that I'm still an inch away from kind of just two seconds away from yeah. blowing something that's really important to me right now. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. jujitsu is teaching me so much stuff that I've been missing my whole life. Right. Mm -hmm. But in that one little moment of kind of just like, you know, discomfort or whatever kind of just like little beef I had there. I was willing to just throw it all away. Yeah. And that's just a pattern of behavior that I'm trying to break. This podcast was created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. You can always listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, and anywhere you get your shows. Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter that accompanies new episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. And if you can, please head to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us. It's just a little thing you can do, and it makes such a difference for us to get the word out about our show. Thanks for listening.